All right, we have a great episode of Side Retired, the MLB podcast coming at you guys today. It is Dylan and Nico as always, and today we're going to be joined by a very special guest. So Nico, let's hit the intro music and we'll get right into this. Hello and welcome to this edition of Side Retired. It is Dylan and Nico. And today we're joined by someone who endured a project that I don't think Nico and I, we would have had the patience to do. And that was indeed Phil Coffin. He's an author of When Baseball Was Still Tops, wrote about all the different baseball players in the top set from 1959. And Phil, we're so excited to have you on the podcast and hopefully have some fun talking some baseball today. Great. Thanks for having me on today. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So in case people don't know yet, Phil wrote a book that is coming out earlier in 2024 called When Baseball Was Still Tops. And he took a deep dive into, yes, there counted 572 cards from the top series in 1959. There are excerpts on every single player, card, team set, and basically every different card that was in that box. There's an excerpt from Phil discussing the importance, the significance of that baseball player in their career and anything in between. So my big question at the beginning is, how did this idea come about? Because Nico and I were wondering, maybe it would be a recent year, but you picked 1959. I'm sure that has some special significance, but also this entire project altogether. Sure. Uh, 1959 uh, was special to me. It was the year that I fell in love with baseball. And coincidentally, thanks to my older brothers, uh, got involved in collecting baseball cards. Um, and I wound up spending pretty much every nickel that I had in 1959 on pack after pack after pack of cards. Uh, one of the nice conceits of the book is that the, the cover looks very much like the wax packs of that era look. So uh, that's kind of neat. But I wound up getting a complete set of 1959 cards. They've always held a, a, a special attraction for me. Uh, and like pretty much every guy of my generation who collected baseball cards, my mom threw them away. Uh, <laughs> but but I always have loved those cards. Um, and, and so even though I didn't have them, I, I had a, a special feeling for them. A um, couple of years ago, I started writing baseball essays for fun when I started having a little more time. And it was basically to amuse myself and to share with baseball buddies. And they were silly. I would take like uh, uh, for for Flag Day. I uh, I wrote about guys named Red, White, and Blue. Um, for uh, for Arbor Day, I wrote about guys named uh, uh, Oak or Maple or <laughs> Branch um, and silly stuff. Um, sometimes more serious. I, I took a look at the uh, the the rosters that played in Jackie Robinson's first game in 1947, a very historic uh, game. And so I just shared these with friends and, uh, you know, I got nice feedback and I, I finished up one and said, you know, I love those 1959 cards. Maybe I should just, I should write about them. So I started and um, like a knucklehead, I, I, I didn't look up how many cards <laughs> there actually had been yeah. in 1959. And as I was underway, I realized, as you mentioned, there are 572. 
And I said, oh, boy, this is going to be a project. Um, <laughs> but I kept plugging away every night. Um, every night I would I would tell my wife, uh, I'm going upstairs to go down some uh, rabbit holes again. <laughs> and she started calling the project Bunny Ball because I was going down rabbit holes every night. So Bunny Ball took hold. And it was just, again, going to be for fun, even though it was a larger project than anything I'd undertaken before to amuse my buddies. Um, and after a while, Laura said, you know, that's a book. And I, of course, said, it's not a book. <laughs> um, and, and she said, it's a book. And so when I was about a third of the way through and was really rolling with it, I said, you know, this is a book. Um, and so from then on, I, I had that concept in mind and just kept going to the finish line. Yeah. I mean, again, 572 is extremely impressive. What I'm just wondering, and I think Dylan would agree, is obviously when you're doing the research, you have your guys like Mickey Mantle, Warren Spahn, Hall of Famers that, again, getting stats and things like that for them is pretty easy and pretty handle. But like some of the guys, again, when you get to 572, there's people who really had just had a cup of coffee in the big leagues and got a tops card. What was it like? having to do the research for some, I remember one excerpt you talked about how he, um, one of them met um, a baseball player that was in high school and like things like that, where it's like these niche stories. What was the process of getting those niche stories? Um, it, uh, it was kind of haphazard in some ways. I mean, I, I would start out with a basic Google search, let's say for Bob Gia Lombardo, um, who was a, a nondescript pitcher who, pitched for part of one season with the Dodgers. <laughs> he and Sandy Koufax went to the same high school in Brooklyn. Um, as I discovered, uh, Baseball Reference was a fantastic resource for this because I would be able to look up stats. Uh, many of the players uh, on Baseball Reference have uh, biographies written by the Sabre Bio Project, which, if you've never dived into that, is a wonderful, wonderful way to look at the history of the game uh, through individual players. And those who don't have the bio projects uh, often do have some bio information there. And so I would look to see, is there anything interesting? Is there anything in their stats? Is there anything where they're from? Is there any connection that I that I see? Um, and some of these players, I went into them uh, not really knowing where I was going to go. And <laughs> as I would research, I'd say, oh, this is interesting. This This fascinates me. So I don't know if it will fascinate anybody else, but I'm going to I'm going to go down this rabbit hole and see what I can find out. And uh, for most of the players, most of the cards, um, it wasn't too long before I came up with a, a concept for each of the essays. There were a few that were a challenge I, when I would say, what in the heck am I going to write about this guy? <laughs> um, and, and sometimes, you know, I, I would keep sort of digging and digging and digging. And, and then I would hit something. I say, aha. <laughs> um, and that, that's how I, I found the second most famous man from Pickway, Kansas was um, I saw Pickway, Kansas. I said, let's look at this. <laughs> I love it. And then sort of another one of those interesting topics is that because you mentioned you would go upstairs at the end of the day and it would basically be like the end of the night. This is what I'm going to write about. Was it one guy a day? Was it there's sometimes these mental blocks of, hey, I can't figure out what to write about this guy. So we're going to skip it. And then likewise, because you mentioned the importance in the book, and I don't want to spoil it too much for people, but the importance of having the number one card. 
um, obviously was being the former commissioner. So was it, hey, I'm going to go in chronological order of the card deck? Or did you start skipping around and basically do which cards came easiest? That's a good question. Um, because uh, I, I had a list of cards and it would have been in some ways um, easy to say, I'm going to start with Mickey Mail and Willie Mays and Hank Aaron <laughs> and Eddie Matthews. Um, but I didn't. I started with the, the first card and just worked my way through the set. And that way I didn't go in with necessarily preconceived notions. Um, and there was a certain serendipity about going, here's Ford Frick, the commissioner of baseball, number one. Here's number two, Eddie Yost, the walking man. Uh, and just going through each card uh, that way uh, and finding just finding out what each card was. Now, the cards, it's this is probably not the greatest marketing pitch in the world, but it's a great bathroom <laughs> read because the essays are are fairly short. They're from like 75 words, some are as much as 700, but they're quick, easy reads. They're self-contained. You don't have to have read the one before it to, to know what you're getting in that card. But there are themes that uh, crop up throughout the book, which are important to that era. Um, 59 had a special place for me just because of of when I came to baseball, but but 1959 was a very important um, time in baseball. Uh, there was about a, a five, six year period where remarkable change was going on in the game. In uh, there, there was a uh, a the owners had instituted a a means of uh, tamping down signing bonuses for amateur players who were called bonus babies. Because um, these young kids were getting big salaries or big bonuses, uh, and they finally ended that stupid rule, uh, which had forced the players who signed for more than four thousand um, dollars, which is like forty thousand dollars now, uh, to be on the major league roster for two years. So they got no development. Uh, in '57, they end that rule, uh, and now young players can actually develop. Uh, in 1958, of course, the, the Dodgers and the Giants moved from New York to the West Coast, radically changing the game. Now it's a, the major leagues are transcontinental. Um, in 1959, Branch Rickey, uh, famous executive, uh, puts together a, a potential rival league called the Continental League. Um, it ultimately failed, but it uh, prodded Major League Baseball to uh moved some franchises the washington senators moved to um minneapolis uh for example um and expand the major leagues so without the threat of the continental league baseball might have stayed in the same rut that it had been in for 60 years 16 teams there had been some franchise moves in the 50s but um now we're expanding the whole pool of baseball um in 1959, also, the last team to integrate comes about, the Boston Red Sox, the last team to, to promote an African-American player to the major leagues. Um, Twelve years after Jackie Robinson comes to the major leagues, the Red Sox finally uh, join the parade. So uh, there's a lot going on in this time period. Uh, and and it's, it, so it, there, those themes sort of weave their way through the book. Yeah, I think that one of the interesting things about the book is that 
even the guys who are very known, like Don Drysdale, you were able to create interesting stories for, not just to be your typical, this person had this stat line. Some people that come to mind were like Minnie Minoso. You talked about how he came into the league. I obviously have a relationship because I'm Cuban and he's a very, mm-hmm. uh, very famous Cuban baseball player. Guys like Gus Zerniel, which I thought was a very fun story about <laughs> Marilyn Monroe. Were there any specific players that maybe people could get a sneak peek that you were like, wow, this was an interesting one for me to write and it would be an interesting one for them to read? Um, well, the Gus Zerniel story was yeah. was a lot of fun. I'll, <laughs> I'll sort of go through the story here in a second, but um, it's – there were – each player had something and um, I, I'm a, I'm an older guy. I've been around baseball <laughs> a long time. I follow a lot of baseball. I have here in my office, I have more than 200 baseball books. So I'm, I'm fairly well-versed, but a lot of these stories I had never encountered. Uh, and so when I read them, uh, I said, wow, this is something I never knew. So that's, this is Gus Zerniel. So we'll, we'll talk <laughs> Gus Zerniel here. Gus Zerniel was, um, was a slow kind of plodding outfielder in the American League in the 1950s, a, uh, a good home run hitter, a good player, uh, but not a superstar by any means. In the early 1950s, he's playing for the White Sox. And in the, the winter, he lives in, uh, in the Hollywood area. And he winds up getting a call from, uh, from someone saying, would you be interested in... Uh, doing a photo shoot with this actress um you know you'll be in baseball garb and so he says yeah why not so he goes and there's i think one other player um and they're just sort of cheesy magazine 1950s kind of pictures like he's uh showing marilyn monroe how to bat so he has his arms around marilyn monroe who's wearing it's like a crop top and shorty shorts um <laughs> And and so here's old Gus Zerniel, who looks kind of what you'd think Gus Zerniel would look like with his arms around Marilyn Monroe. So the, the magazine winds up publishing. It's obviously a promotional thing for Marilyn Monroe and movies that she's working on. Time goes by. White Sox are in New York during the season to play. Marilyn Monroe's in New York City. Um, papers write about it. Uh, bring all this up. And Joe DiMaggio um, reads about it and says uh, something to the effect is, how does a rookie like Gus Zerniel uh, get a date with uh, a woman <laughs> like that? So connections get made, and and Zerniel, who was happily married to Marla Jean, uh, you know, who had not been happy about the photo shoot, by the way, uh, <laughs> you know, he's happy to, to pass, pass along information. And so, of course, Joe DiMaggio starts going dating Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> and very quickly they marry. So, the upshot is that uh, that the the famed uh, DiMaggio Monroe marriage uh, lasted only nine months, but Gus and Marla Jean Zernio were married for about fifty years. <laughs> oh, I love that! But that's also the fascinating thing about this is that. You now have these stories that you can just recollect off the top of your mind. So I guess I'm curious because Nico and I were thinking if we all of a sudden wrote a book about we were both born 2002, 2003. So about players born in that era. And obviously there's a lot of stuff about the steroid era and everything in between. Mm -hmm. But 
we'd obviously recognize maybe 75% of the names or 50% of the names, but wouldn't have stories about all of them. So the question sort of I had for you is when you first looked at this project and you saw all the players listed one through 572 from 1959, had you heard of most of them or was it a, all of a sudden you get to a name and be like, who the heck is this guy? Well, most of them I did know. And this probably is an indictment of me that I remember these names from, uh, you know, 60 some years ago as <laughs> if they were very fresh. Um, there were guys who I, I had no clue. There was one guy, and I, I mentioned this in my, my essay by the guy named Russ Heeman, who is a, a, a pretty uh, not very good pitcher for the <laughs> Indians. And I, I couldn't, I didn't remember his name. I looked, uh, you know, looked at his stats. They meant nothing to me. And as I was writing the book for each one, I would look at the card. And I said, oh, my God, I remember this guy. I had about... <laughs> I had about 20 of this guy's cards and he was, he was one of those guys who was a terrible player. Um, but you always got his card. Um, and so that's kind of what I wrote about it. As it turns out, I had about one card for every inning he pitched in the major leagues back <laughs> when I was a kid. I love it. And then sort of like a follow-up, if we said a player's name and we don't want to put you on the spot unless you want us to, if we said the player's name, would you be able to know what you wrote slash remember about them? Or is that sort of somewhere um, filed into the back of the mind? That's I, would, <laughs> I would probably do pretty well. You you may catch me. So pick one out and we'll see what uh, what goes. Well, let's pick a guy like, so I'm not going to, the first name when I hit random number generated, generated Billy Martin. And I know there's some great stories there. So we can talk some Billy Martin if we'd like to. But I'll go a little below that and say a guy like Ron Blackburn. Oh, Ron Blackburn is actually one of my favorites. Uh, Ron Blackburn pitched a few innings for the Pirates. There's no reason anybody has ever heard of Ron Blackburn <laughs> or would ever remember him except the Blackburn family. <laughs> However, Ron Blackburn is from Mount Airy, North Carolina, which um, astoundingly, this small town in, in, uh, in North Carolina, has uh, produced a couple of Major League Baseball players, uh, an NFL player, um, a uh, a longtime country music star named Donna Fargo, who had a huge hit back in the 70s. Um, and just by chance, Mount Airy is the home of Andy Griffith from the Andy Griffith Show. Um, and Mount Airy, as it turns out, is the template for Mayberry in the Andy Griffith Show. So basically, Ron Blackburn is from Mayberry. I like it. <laughs> That's imp and that's kind of what I like about this book and like relating it to us is I think that like me and Dylan, one of the reasons we do this podcast is because, again, obviously we don't play baseball anymore, but it's kind of our outlet for like being able to still like keep our baseball like fandom alive. How sure. was this book like helpful? And as you said before, like the stories that you the essays that you write before, how did that shape and like kind of revitalize your love for baseball? You know, as as I've gotten older, it is harder to. Um, stay connected to the game. I'm not as familiar with the players. Uh, the way you followed baseball for many of the decades I was following baseball, you can't you you can't open up the newspaper and look at the box scores anymore. Um, you have to go online and and so it's a different, a whole different uh, notion. Um, I've been in journalism my whole adult life, much of it in sports departments and newspapers also in news departments. And when I was not in sports departments, I, I found that I didn't pay as much attention to baseball. 
so working on this book, while it did not necessarily connect me immediately to modern day baseball, it did revive memories of the baseball that I grew up with and, and that uh, the reasons that I learned to love baseball. Baseball played today is not the way it was in 1959. Um, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, the game changes, uh, sometimes for the better, sometimes not. Um, but it's always a great game. Absolutely. I love that. And I know one of the things that was also mentioned in the book is that your brothers, Dodgers, White Sox. So I have to ask, what fan were you of when you grew up? Has that sort of waned off as the years have gone and gone? And then similarly, because I know there's some people that have that favorite baseball player that caused them to fall in love with the game. Obviously, you have 572. So was the player <laughs> that you love in the book or is it someone else? Um, I actually grew up an Indianapolis Indians fan. Uh, they were the triple A team in Indianapolis where I grew up. Um, the, uh, the, the Indians had a kept changing their major league affiliates. By the time I was 12 years old, the team had had four major league affiliates. Um, they'd had the Cleveland Indians. They'd had the White Sox. They had the Phillies for a year. They had the Reds. So as a kid, it was hard to maintain a connection to a major league team. There was no major league team within at least 100 miles um, because the affiliates kept changing. I mean, if if you're a White Sox fan this year, well, now there's no White Sox fan team uh, <laughs> minor leaguers in your town. They're they're Phillies minor leaguers. Um, so I was a fan of the, the the local AAA team. And I never, unlike most people, most sane people, I never developed a, a <laughs> connection to a team. Um, I just love baseball. And most people who are fans, they, they don't understand how you can not have the connection to a team. But I, I just never developed that. There's a, some years where I'm fascinated by certain teams because of players or what's going on. They have a great narrative. Uh, my best friend is a White Sox fan, so I kind of pay attention to them. Um, but I, I never the fan gene just never kicked in. Is there anyone now that maybe like I know you said that you're kind of a little bit away from baseball because like you said, hard to like pick the box scores in the newspaper. Is there anyone kind of currently or maybe like maybe a little bit more recent that you're like, wow, I remember this guy kind of loved watching him play, kind of loved hearing about him. You mean current players? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, one player I'm really fascinated by uh, and, I, and I wish he'd stay healthy is Mike Trout because he's. You look at Mike Trout, and he's built like uh, an NFL linebacker, um, and he he has lost a fair amount of his speed, but in his, you know, through at least his mid twenties, you know, he was this unbelievable combination of power and speed, while also being a good hitter, a selective hitter. He he pretty much ticked every box you could want, um, and, and I, I I like well-rounded players uh and uh, and if if mike trout uh never played again he would be a hall of famer um i i would i would love to see him have good health and finish out his career in a way that that we would appreciate in my era you had uh, anomalous players like hank aaron who had a phenomenal end to his career which most players didn't. I mean, most players, their careers were effectively done um, in their early to mid thirties. Uh, you look at the power hitters that era, and like after age thirty-two, they were they were done. 
Uh, and Hank Aaron, you know, spent another eight years crashing home runs. I would like to see Mike Trout have that kind of finish to his career. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, I think every single person who likes baseball wants Mike Trout to stay healthy. I mean, I think Mike Trout being healthy is good for the game. But, I mean, alongside him, I mean, maybe not anymore. Yeah, probably one of the most interesting players since Babe Ruth. I mean, Shohei Otani. I mean, I'm sure, obviously, unless you live under a rock, Shohei Otani is kind of one of the greatest <laughs> things. Not you, but just like people. Like, I mean, one of the greatest things to to happen to baseball. I mean, just the anomaly. Like, what's it like again? Seeing the contrast of him to like someone in like the 50s. Well, one thing that that is undeniable is that the athletes in the game today are vastly better they're bigger they're stronger on average they're faster um baseball is a game of skill as well as talent and there may be you might be able to argue that some of the skills are not as good now as they were in in decades past but but the talent and the abilities of modern players i mean they're off the charts um I believe it was Joe Sheehan, uh, 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 who has a fantastic baseball newsletter, was writing recently that uh, if you looked at uh, a great fielder from 30, 40 years ago, Ozzie Smith, Brooks Robinson, um, and you looked at today's players, well, today's players are doing routinely what were the exceptional plays of an Ozzie Smith or Brooks Robinson. Defensive players, they're for whatever reason, are just they're just better, um, and it, it's sometimes hard to remember just uh, how much the game has changed in that way and how how skilled the modern players are. Absolutely, yeah. I think yeah. One of the fun questions though that we have asked everyone on this podcast so far that has stepped foot into the aforementioned Zoom room, and yeah. we're sure no one's going to get the question right, except for maybe someone does. But if you'd like to be our next recipient in this question as to where is he signing and we've gotten a wide variety of answers but if you'd like to throw your hat in the ring as to a prediction otani yeah uh, um yeah it has been uh it's been an interesting process because um there has not been a whole lot of chatter mm -hmm. informed chatter as to where he might be going <laughs> and even things like the report that he was reportedly in uh, in Florida looking at the Blue Jays spring training uh, setup um, was uh, was very unusual. Um, I mean, I guess if I had if I were to guess, I would say the Dodgers are a lukewarm favorite. Um, geography is is part of it. You know, they they have a chance to win. They spend money. Um, whether they're willing to go over the luxury tax as much as they would need to, to, to uh, acquire him. I don't know. Um, it would be, to me, it would be fascinating if, if some franchise like the Orioles who have a very low payroll um, would say, you know, we have this great young talent uh, on this team. Our, our, our payroll is like, 28th or it's, <laughs> it's some ridiculous i, I think um she wrote today that their payroll for next year right now is 84 million dollars um they could afford 
Shohei Otani. Um, they're eventually going to have to pay players like uh, Rutschman. Um, but, you know, they that would be a fascinating, fascinating combination. No, I love that. And that's actually the first person, Nico, I think, out of the handful of people that we've asked this question to over the last two, three weeks. That is the first Baltimore Orioles that we've gotten. So that would certainly I be... That's I kind of love it too. <laughs> like, obviously, I'm biased. I would love the Red Sox or Marlins, but like, in terms of just like baseball fandom of loving the league, I would love to see like a team like the Orioles, like just like you said, a young team be like, we have all this young talent. Let's make a push and just surprise everyone. <laughs> it would, yeah, and I, I, mean, I think it would be good for the game. I mean, Absolutely. because at at this point, with free agents or or even a trade like for Juan Soto, um. The default is always the big money, big market teams. Um, the Orioles are are perhaps uniquely positioned uh, because they own their own or co-own their own TV uh, network. So they're not threatened the way as some of the other franchises are because their TV deals are falling apart. Um, the Orioles know what their, their TV money is going to be. Their uh, attendance last year went up considerably you got to think after 101 wins last year their uh attendance is going to go up again they could afford to do this and it would be it'd be great not to be talking about red Sox, yankees dodgers <laughs> oh i love it and absolutely and then the last question we have for you is sort of um i'm sure he'd be upset if we didn't mention his name for helping us make the connection mark broff was the one that put you and I in connection with each other. So if you have any fun stories of how you know Mr. Broff and how you guys connected as well as if you'd like to continue the trend that he started of, I believe we had Paul Semendinger on the show. Not sure if you know him, but he wrote a book as well. Yeah, I actually, yes. He nominated Mark and then Mark has now nominated you. So if you'd like to continue that trend, by all means go for it, but as well, if you want to give a shout out to Mark. Uh, Well, Mark, I, I met Mark serendipitously. Um, a friend sent me a notice that Mark was speaking about his book, um, Fathers and Sons, um, at uh, the library in Montclair, New Jersey, which is near where I used to live. We're now the Jersey Shore. I'm about 60 miles away. I said, well, this sounds interesting. Um, so I, I drove the hour plus up to uh, Montclair to, uh, to hear Mark's presentation. And it was fun. It was engaging. He's very genial personable guy he was extremely gracious he gave my book a shout out during his presentation and i never met him until that night um and we've kind of stayed in touch um and uh, you know we're we're both first-time authors uh both writing about a subject that we love um so um it, it was just sort of a chance meeting um but it you know it led me to you and and your <laughs> podcast which uh, i very much appreciate absolutely and then i guess the one thing would be your book is obviously coming out in early 2024 would you like to give the listeners a shout out as to where they might be able to find it get a copy of it and any other insights you'd like to provide for them absolutely i'm actually hoping that it gets out this month um Ooh. the book Ooh, is, the book is uh the book is when baseball was still tops uh it's published by mcfarland and company which uh has a great catalog of baseball books for any baseball fan. Uh, if you go to McFarlandBooks.com, you can find hundreds of baseball books there that they've published. And, and uh, I have bought 
many, many books from McFarland <laughs> over the years. Um, and so we're, the book is um, in line to be printed uh, in the second or third week of December. So I, I would love for it to be you know, available by Christmas. Oh, I love that. Well, looking forward to hopefully getting a copy of it. Would love to read the full thing. Obviously, we've read a lot of it in the Word doc that you sent us. I know Nico and I are one of the handful of people that probably have a copy of it already, but I would love to see the physical full-fledged copy of it once it comes out. Thanks. I, I'm looking forward to it. It's coming out. Absolutely. Well, Nico, I've had a blast on this interview. I don't know about you, but this was really informative. We put your knowledge to the test and you passed it with <laughs> flying colors and... Uh, looking forward to seeing once the book comes out, hopefully later this month, but if not in early 2024. And really appreciate you taking the time and hopping on the podcast with us today. It's been great talking with you guys. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So for Dylan Campione, Nico Fernandez, and Phil Coffin, until the next time, the side is retired. <laughs>